Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. My dad, he experienced a severe heart attack, and that was in front of me. I was the only one with him. And this was the first time that I really saw what loss of health looks like in an acute manner. And I think up until that time, for my first 15 years of life, I kind of just thought that our health was guaranteed. I know that sounds very naive, but I just hadn't seen anyone close to me go through any sort of ill health. That period for me, although I didn't realize it at the time, it did plant that seed, which would then later fuel me to progress my studies and write the book. But one thing at that time that really did stick in in my mind was we had a kind of family consultation with the cardiologist, a bit of a debrief. You know, this is what's gone down. You know, here's your dad's prognosis. Here's what his health could look like from here. And all of that, you know, we were very relieved. As I say, you know, we were just happy that he was alive. But the cardiologist did say to my brother and I that your dad's had a heart attack at 41, which is very young. Your grandfather had a heart attack in his early 60s. So you and your brother, my brother's three years older than I, you're pretty much young men. You need to keep an eye on this because cardiovascular disease runs in families. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to my podcast, The Light Watkins Show. This is actually our 100th podcast episode. Woohoo! <laughs> I can't tell you how thrilled and how honored I am to be a part of this mission and to be presenting you with 100 incredibly inspiring conversations and stories about people just like you and I who have gone above and beyond to follow their passion and purpose. And I have to say, I often get high on my own supply over here. I'll regularly go back and re-listen to many of the past episodes to re-inspire myself because, let's be honest, we all have days where we're just not as motivated or inspired as we may normally be to stay on mission. And as Ralph Waldo Emerson said so eloquently, our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we know we could be. And that was actually the quote that inspired me to start this podcast. So big shout out to Ralph Waldo Emerson. And anyway, this week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Mr. Simon Hill, who is the creator of the Proof blog, the podcast also known as The Proof, and most recently, his best-selling book, The proof is in the plants, plant referring to the plants that we eat, obviously, as in a plant-filled diet, and proof refers to scientific proof. So long story short, Simon grew up in Australia with a father who was a physiologist, and he was also a heart researcher. And so he grew up literally surrounded by scientific papers, and his dad would often challenge 
him and his brother to not just make some random claim, but also to prove it. And then cut to many years later, as a teenager, Simon's father actually, ironically, had a heart attack right in front of Simon. And as you could imagine, that was a very traumatic experience. And it inspired Simon many years later to explore natural ways of preventing heart attacks. And all the roads led to diet. His brother was the first one to introduce him to a plant-based diet. And then Simon tried it out. And he was surprised to experience such dramatic changes in his health. But he wanted to take it a step further. And he wanted to see what the research had to say about eating mostly plants. So he enrolled in a nutrition school and he started learning how to properly read scientific research. He learned about what fiber does and what all these other minerals and nutrients do. And he found more and more proof of the benefits of plant-based eating. But he also saw how pretty much anyone can spin the science to say whatever they wanted to say. So as someone who became very astute at reading scientific papers, he was a proponent of something called the evidence hierarchy, which is one of the most scientific ways to assess evidence. And that's something that we talked about in the interview. We also talked about how and why different doctors will cherry pick from the studies to reinforce whatever beliefs they have. And as some of you all may know, I was actually vegan for many years. I think it was 12 years total and vegetarian for about 15 years. So I'm not exclusively plant-based anymore, but this is not a conversation where the intention is to indoctrinate anyone into eating in any particular way. My aim as the host of this particular show, and I do this with every guest, is to get to the heart of their story <laughs> in order to understand their inner motivations and what obstacles they had to overcome when trying to follow their mission. And belief is one of the biggest obstacles that we all have to grapple with, overcoming the things that we've believed for many, many years. So for that reason alone, I think you're going to get a tremendous amount of value out of uh, experiencing this podcast episode. But also Simon's whole approach is about being the most objective resource on plant-based diets and planetary health. So even if you are plant curious or you know someone who is, you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn how to talk about these things that don't trigger other people. And I think you'll also really love Simon's whole demeanor and his approach to understanding this particular aspect of eating plants. He's got a great story. No matter what your belief is about diet, Simon says to eat less jelly beans and more black beans and just make sure that no matter what you do, eat more fiber. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Mr. Simon Hill. Simon Hill, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I had the honor of being on your podcast a few months ago when my book, Knowing Where to Look, came out. And, uh, and you had a book coming out in Australia around the same time, but then in the States more mm -hmm. recently, Plant Proof. And so full disclosure, I'm not a vegan. I eat a lot of plants. I'm a huge fan. I was vegan, I think longer than you. I was vegan for, for 12 years up until about the time you were becoming vegan. You handed <laughs> and, over the um, I handed over the baton, yeah. <laughs> but I'm still a fan and I don't have a side. I just like it when people are passionate about whatever they're passionate about. And who knows, maybe I'll 
veer back over in that direction at some point soon. And, and I guess we can talk a little bit about my journey as it relates to your findings and your research. But I'm really impressed, man. I'm really impressed by the extent to which you researched for your book. It's a pretty hefty book. So I'm excited to just dig into that. So anyway, thank you for coming on to the show. Yes. Well, you're right. You're on my show and that was a big hit with the community. So thank you for doing that and sharing all your wisdom and pleasure to be here with you today. I probably should qualify as well. The book, and I guess my thesis is not that a vegan diet is the single only diet that is optimal for human health or that there is one optimal diet. I think that the whole dietary label kind of idea is interesting. We could perhaps explore that later, but I think I'm a a little bit more open in terms of what I see a healthy diet is. And and I guess my rationale for adopting a a vegan diet is, is based on a little bit more than than just kind of human health. Yeah. And that's kind of your brand, right? Like you're the objective voice within that, you know, the, every tribe has its proponents and advocates and adversaries, and you wanted to be a voice of reason, so to speak, because you obviously weren't always vegan. And so why don't we start there? Why don't we start in your younger years? You grew up surrounded by scientific research. So talk about that, your earliest experiences and, and your dad and his influence on your future. Yeah, I was kind of born into this environment of science. So I really had no choice. <laughs> I think my fate in many ways was decided for me by my dad's career choice and his passion. At least it, it largely influenced me in, in terms of where I ended up. But I would get picked up by my dad at school and jump into the car and there'd be a pile full of scientific papers on the seat. And I can vividly remember some of my earliest memories, just having to like shift these papers out of the way. Literally every time they'd be piled just on the seat or coming out of his briefcase overflowing. And he would have scribbled on them and highlighted bits and pieces and I'd shift them to the ground and he drove a very small car, an MGB, and somehow I'd fit in there with my backpack in the you know, sandwich between these papers in the in the kind of leg space. And then we'd get home and and there'd be more of these scientific papers all around the house. You know, the kitchen, the living room, his study. In many ways he turned the whole house into his study, I think. It seemed that way with all these papers. And I had no idea what these scientific papers were saying. I could barely even make sense of the English language at that time. I was still trying to kind of perfect that. But what I knew was that these were very important to my dad. And I would spend weekends going into the universities that he was working at. My dad's a professor in physiology. And he would walk around in his white lab coat with his colleagues. And I would see them on the microscopes. And I'd jump up and and have a go looking down the, the microscopes into these kind of petri dishes. And again, All that I kind of understood at that time was that science is really important and it's this method that we have for objectively better understanding the world that we live in. And by doing that, we can reduce some uncertainty and then hopefully make better decisions in our lives. When you were a kid, right, and your dad's a scientist, so my dad was an attorney. So a lot of times the conversation would be such that the way he would speak, he would speak as an attorney who would speak in arguments and 
you would have to defend yourself and all of that. So as a kid, what did you learn growing up with a scientist? Like, what is that conversation like? Was there a scientific method to everything in your house, even like schoolwork and stuff like that? Well, there was. It was a little bit of my dad would always challenge me and say why. So if I was Mm -hmm. thinking something or saying something, and that's a very scientific thing to do, if you just say something to then sort of inquire, well, why is that? So I could really understand his kind of curious mind that he had and how that translated into the way that he saw the world for sure. And I kind of, over time as a child, started to develop a real appreciation for science and for that curiosity. I didn't know where I would personally end up, but I did gravitate through my studies towards this field of science. My dad told my brothers and I, whatever you do, don't become an attorney. <laughs> I don't know why he said that, but I don't, I don't know if he necessarily saw it as his passion and purpose. What were some of the ideologies or philosophies that you remember your dad telling you when you were a kid? When it came to at least his work, it was that we can use the scientific method to basically test our intuition. So as humans, we have intuition and we have hypotheses and we can use this method of science in a very objective form to kind of test those things, test them out. And we can either falsify them or we can move towards a position where we believe that that hypothesis is actually accurate. So for me, I'm not sure if I fully understood or answered your question there. You know, and it was it was also he taught my brother and I not to think in black and white thinking. And that mm-hmm. was really, really big for us. And he would always say, you know, not all science is equal. And I can remember that. Mm-hmm. And it's something I wrote in my book. And what he means by that is that there are very different forms of scientific investigations. There are different methods. There are, you know, a range of different studies that qualify as science, but we need to understand which ones are more reliable, which ones are more valid, which ones are hypothesis generating, and which ones should we use for, say, public health recommendations. And being able to kind of appreciate the gray and the uncertainty, and then be able to zoom out from any one individual piece of science and look at the totality of evidence So if you just are looking at one little piece of the puzzle and you've zoomed in really, really far, if you're just looking at that piece, you'll fail to see the entire picture of that puzzle. So appreciating the uncertainty, getting comfortable with the gray, understanding that everything is not black and white and not getting so reductionist that you're unable to kind of zoom back out and see everything from a much broader view. He was studying the heart, right? Heart health. Mm -hmm. That was his area of of research. Yeah. So he's been researching how our arteries function. And his particular research is interested in vascular stiffness, which is a a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And so he's basically a very deep scientist working under the microscope, trying to understand mechanisms, which are important. I, th- I, I see sometimes online, I think that that research can be over-extrapolated because not everything that happens in a Petri dish 
or at the level of an animal translates to a human. And I think people get a bit tripped up here because often I say that and and they might think that I'm saying that that science is not good. You know, my dad has performed that science throughout his entire career. I'm not saying that it's not good. It's it's much needed, but it is hypothesis generating. So when you have findings at that level of science, you then need to test them at higher, more rigorous, more valid levels of science, particularly in humans, in order to kind of strengthen that hypothesis and understand that what you're seeing in that kind of Petri dish environment is actually translating across to human physiology. So when you were 13, 14, 15, did you consider your dad to be a healthy person? Because I know a lot mm-hmm. of Aussies, not everyone, but a lot of them are you know, very health conscious. I see people running and when I'm there, you know, everyone's always exercising or playing rugby or doing something. What was this? And he was only in his 40s, early 40s when mm-hmm. you were a yeah. teenager. So was he healthy? In your eyes? Yeah, he, yeah, definitely. You know, I would go to the YMCA with my dad. And I would kind of watch him work out. He plays squash as well. So he was playing squash two, three times a week. He would do some strength workouts. He was, you know, at that stage, a very hardworking academic with two young children. So he's, he wasn't an elite athlete. He didn't really have the time, I, I think, to kind of to put in those hours. But I think if you looked at him, certainly you wouldn't look at him and say he was unhealthy. You would look at him and say, mm-hmm. he's a typical representation of an early 40s Australian father who is doing some leisure, some physical exercise without being an, a kind of elite athlete. So, you know, I think where you're probably going with this is my dad, you know, he experienced a severe heart attack and that was in front of me. I was the only one with him. And this was the first time that I really saw what loss of health looks like in an acute manner. And I think up until that time, for my first 15 years of life, I kind of just thought that our health was guaranteed. I know that sounds very naive, but I just hadn't seen anyone close to me go through any sort of ill health. So my dad had this heart attack in front of me. And initially, he went through some stages of denial for a couple of hours there, and then it it got too severe whereby we had to call the ambulance, and they actually sent a helicopter. We were quite remote. We were in a country area in Victoria, and they flew him to hospital, and all of that's happening at a million miles an hour, and there's a lot to kind of digest as as a kid. As we just mentioned, my dad from the outside appeared very, very healthy, so this is going down, there's paramedics, there's oxygen, they've got him hooked up to cables to check his pulse. And it was very frightening because it seemed to come from nowhere. It was so unexpected. They got him to the hospital and they saved his life. And, you know, that was what I was most concerned with and and my brother and mother were most concerned with. And thinking back on that now, I really appreciate how lucky he was because that's not the case for so many people. So many people die of sudden cardiac death. And so a combination of good fortune, of incredible healthcare access and privilege have resulted in my dad getting a second chance. And I think part of that is what inspires me today with what I do and and why I wrote the book 
so that I can hopefully get some of this information to people before they experience something like my father did and and not have to kind of run the gauntlet there and, and hope for a second chance. But that period for me, although I didn't realize it at the time, it did plant that seed, which would then go, you know, later kind of fuel me to to progress my studies and 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 write the book. But what one thing at that time that really did stick in, in my mind was we had a kind of family consultation with the cardiologist, a bit of a debrief. You know, this is what's gone down. You know, here's your dad's prognosis. Here's what his health could look like from here. And all of that, you know, we were very relieved. As I say, you know, we were just happy that he was alive. But the cardiologist did say to my brother and I that, you know, your dad's had a heart attack at 41, which is very young. Your grandfather had a heart attack in his early 60s. So you and your brother, my brother's three years older than I, you're pretty much young men. You need to keep an eye on this because cardiovascular disease runs in families. And the conversation kind of ended there and, well, not kind of, it did end there. And so for a long while, my brother and I, our takeaway from that was that we had been dealt a sort of bad genetic card and that we need to keep an, an eye on this and that, you know, who knows, we may end up in the same position as dad in our early 40s. You wanted to go to medical school, but you changed your mind at the last minute. Walk us through the next few years after high school, knowing that you were on a collision course with some sort of heart problem genetically Mm. and not feeling like you had many options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I want to kind of clarify that although I had that mindset, I was living life to the fullest, perhaps because I thought that, hey, anything can happen. So it wasn't like it was getting me down and, and I wasn't enjoying life. In fact, it was probably the opposite. And you're right, you've done your research. I wanted to go to to med school. I didn't quite get the marks to go to the medical school in Melbourne and at University of Melbourne. And I had the decision to to go down and do medical school in Tasmania, which I've since gone and, and traveled and is a beautiful place. But at the time, I wanted to keep playing football. I had a lot of friends in Melbourne. I wasn't really wanting to give up the kind of social side of things. It wasn't that appealing for me. So I switched direction, undertook a Bachelor of Science degree in physiotherapy and progressed through that and started working as a sports physiotherapist in private practice and with elite footballers in in Melbourne. And then eventually, you know, some years later, I realized that I had a, a pretty good understanding of physiology and anatomy and a lot of understanding about managing sports injuries and rehabilitation. But I did have this real curiosity for nutrition, particularly having come across some information that suggested our nutrition, the way we eat, can really affect our risk of cardiovascular disease. And that inspired me to go back to university and I did a master's in nutrition science at Deakin University. was after you had your experience with your brother, right? That's right. Yeah. So he was basically that little bit of kind of information that opened my eyes to, hey, I'm feeling really healthy right now, but given my 
family history. Maybe there's something here that I should look at a little more deeply. And so this is kind of what opened my eyes to how confusing nutrition is and is what inspired Mm. me to then go and say, hey, I actually want to go and study this in detail so I can actually decode it because it seems like Mm. another language and it's so confusing with, you know, people online with seemingly the same qualifications but coming at this from very different angles. So the story is I was living in Sydney at this time. My brother was coming to visit with his fiance to stay for a week or two weeks, I think it was. And he called me up. I think the first time was about three months beforehand. And he said, look, I just want to give you the heads up that Lauren and I have changed the way that we're eating. And I said, okay. And he said, yeah, we're no longer eating red meat or or chicken. We're still eating fish. We're eating a sort of pescatarian style diet. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. And, And I think he was giving me the heads up just so that you know, shopping and, and the restaurants we, we would go to would accommodate for that. Not that that's very difficult to accommodate for. And then, you know, I, I didn't hear from him for a little while. And then about a week before he came, he called me back up and said, look, I just want to give you a bit more of an update where we've actually changed the way we're eating again. We're no longer eating fish. And at that stage, I was saying, well, what, what's left? You know, animal protein for me, light was a very, very big part of my diet, a huge part. That was a result of the kind of fitness industry and a football sort of environment I was, I was in at the time. So he kind of explained to me that they'd stopped eating seafood. And I said, okay, well, I'm not sure where we're going to eat if we're going to go out to any restaurants. So I'll leave that to you. And when you get up, we can go to the grocery store and you can help me. And to be honest, they came up and it wasn't really a big deal. They loved to cook. They cooked a lot of great food. We had a really good time. I think we went out to a couple of restaurants that they chose. And other than sort of my brother just saying that he was making these decisions for his cardiovascular health primarily and sending me a couple of links to a few kind of podcasts, other than that, I just really enjoyed the food. And I think, you know, it took some weeks after that for me to kind of muster up the energy and kind of get some space and think to myself, well, hey, maybe there is something to this. But also remember back to what I was saying about my dad. I'm not sure if I added this when you asked about some of his influences on us. Being skeptical is something that my dad has reiterated to us for as long as, as I can recall. And I was very skeptical of what my brother, what he was kind of sending to me. And I was kind of wearing this hat of, hey, I've done a Bachelor of, of Science. I'm going to take a deep dive and I'll let you know what I think of it. And in some ways, I wanted to kind of prove my brother wrong because my diet at that time, which was very rich in animal protein, particularly red meat and chicken, it felt like it was serving me quite well. I felt fit and and healthy. So I had no real reason to kind of change that. Who got him into it? Did Lauren watch like Forks Over Knives and say, honey, you have to watch this. And then they watched it together type of a thing. He had actually come across a couple of podcasts where folks like Rich Roll were getting interviewed. 
And then they'd mm-hmm. listen to Rich's audio book. But my brother, he comes from a marketing kind of sales background. He wasn't doing a deep dive into the science. He had been sent a bit of information about people that had made the transition to change their diet and also some information around various populations that were living long, healthy lives without some of the diseases that we have and what their dietary habits looked like. So at that level, at that stage, this was, I guess, very surface level kind of information. But you guys grew up in the same house, so you both Mm -hmm. were exposed to this whole skepticism Mm -hmm. (laughs) influence. So did he know how to approach you with this information? Like Simon is not into the hard sell or Simon needs to hear scientific evidence or Simon is appealed to his physique or how did he lure you into the the club? During that week, certainly he wasn't like... I'm just asking because I I have three brothers and I was vegan for a long time and none of them, I couldn't get anybody to to eat like that. So it's it's an interesting thing to kind of... To, to think back on and I haven't really asked him too much about that but if I was to kind of just think back to that period he certainly was not sending me scientific studies you know he just shared a couple of things that he'd listened to and they cooked good food and and we went to restaurants that served good food you know I think you kind of have to remember my brother going through high school and into university his interest was never really in science and mine was. So kind of in our relationship, you know, he has his skill sets in, a, in another area to mine. So I think when it came to this kind of area of health and wellness, I don't think he would come to it from a position of kind of trying to show me the, the science, so to speak. It was more, hey, this is what I'm doing. And look, if you're interested, this is why but it was kind of just teeing me up for my own kind of journey to deep dive it. But as I said, I was very skeptical. And I do remember saying to him many times that I'm not sure if what he was doing was a good idea. Okay. So then a lot of people would decide, okay, I'm going to read a few books about this. or I'm going to watch a documentary or listen to some podcasts. You decided to go to master's, you can get your master's in nutrition, which is Going above and beyond to understand this, what, what, what was it that propelled you to go that far with mm-hmm. it? Well, Did you not like physical therapy and physiology mm-hmm. and all of that? Or are you thinking about career shift? It wasn't that I immediately enrolled in, in a master's in nutrition science. What I did do to begin with was go into the peer-reviewed literature So in my undergraduate Mm -hmm. degree, I did honors and and that involved actually conducting my own study and and writing it up and learning about study design and methodology results and a little bit of data analyzing and then coming to your own discussion and conclusion. So I had some skills to kind of read peer-reviewed science, but very quickly going in and, and looking at nutrition science without any formal training in that. I realized that it's a whole different beast and I didn't have the necessary skills to actually make sense of it. And I mentioned before that if you look in the media or you just look online, you can see people that have both maybe have MD after their name, but come to very, very different conclusions. So I was at that stage, I was kind of in a position where I feel like a lot of people are, where they're just very confused 
and you kind of just throw your hands up in the air and think, well, nobody's got this worked out. And I think that and that, like frustration, there was frustration at that point. I think that is what inspired me. I had to kind of get the skills at my end so that I could actually start to make sense of nutrition science and understand what a, a healthy diet looked like. And, you know, to answer your question as to whether I was kind of bored of physiotherapy or not, you know, I love physiotherapy. I think it's a fantastic profession. I had, you know, so many great memories there and, and, and really great learnings that set me up for what I'm doing today. But I did feel like there was this huge gap in my understanding of health. And even in those football club environments, when it came to nutrition, it just seemed like there was a very cookie cutter approach. All players were doing the same thing. There wasn't any talk of evidence. And so I kind of had this brewing curiosity to go away and learn this at a deeper level and then hopefully become a kind of more rounded health professional. Can we talk a little bit about those differences? You said that mm-hmm. nutrition studies, that was a different beast. How was that different based on study design and methodology? Yeah. So there are so many moving parts when it comes to our diet that I think people can appreciate. And if I say to you, hey, Light, is red meat good or bad? Well, in what dietary pattern, for who, how old are they? What exposure level? And when I say what exposure level, I mean, are we talking about 50 grams a week, 50 grams a day, 200 grams a week, 200 grams a day? How long for? And compared to what? Are we talking about red meat compared to a Mars bar? Are we talking about red meat compared to whole grains? Are we talking about red meat compared to legumes? Are we talking about red meat compared to fish? So I think you can start to appreciate right now that there are so many studies out there and unless you get into those and really understand the parameters of those studies, you can quickly come to the wrong conclusions. And so an example of this would be, I'm going to use a a vegan diet here because I think this illustrates an important point. Let's say I find a study that shows a vegan diet improves health markers. And let's say we're talking about things like blood pressure, and cholesterol. Now, quite often that study might make headlines. Now, a really important question to ask there was compared to what? Did they just compare a vegan diet to a standard American diet, what we would call a dummy diet that basically Mm. anything can beat? And a lot of times that's the case. Now, you might think, well, you don't need to go to, to university to learn that, but I'm giving you a very simple example of of essentially just needing to understand the art of nutrition science, how these studies are being conducted so that when you're reading them, you can be aware of these things. Another example would be if you take a population of people and let's say you're trying to work out how does red meat affect someone's health outcomes and we take a population of people and we track them for 20 years. Now, if we find an association. People that eat more red meat have more heart attacks. An important question to sort of think about there is, well, what else do people that eat more red meat do? Do they drink more alcohol? Do they exercise less? Do they smoke more? Are they of lower socioeconomic status or higher? Do they have different education levels? All of these other things that we know also correlate with health outcomes. And so, 
what I would be looking for in a study now that is, say, looking at that particular question is, did they use a, what's called a multivariate statistical analysis to adjust for these what we call confounding variables? And what a confounding variable means, people will hear this, is essentially in a particular study, we're looking at an exposure. So in that example, red meat and an outcome. And let's say the outcome is heart attacks. A confounding variable is any other kind of variable that could be affecting that outcome, like smoking or alcohol or these other factors. And when we, in a good cohort, which is that kind of study I've, I've explained there of a population, often that's called epidemiology mm-hmm. or observational science. In a good mm-hmm. study, the researchers will consider what are the possible confounding variables. And you can imagine, light like, in order to actually adjust for those, that means that when you're actually collecting data, you have to ask the questions. You have to find out. And then Again, how good that adjustment is depends on how good your questions are. Did you just ask people, do you drink or not? Or did you try and find out, do people drink on average one drink a day, two drinks a day, three drinks a day? Did you just ask if people smoke or not? Or did you find out if they have 20 cigarettes a week or 10 or five? And so how well defined your population is in terms of all of these parameters will affect how well you can adjust for these confounding variables. All of that can sound confusing. The point of that is the better the data and the better that statistical adjustment, the more certain or the more confident, I should say, we can be that our finding is an accurate reflection of that exposure and how that exposure affects that outcome. So when you're reading a study, unless a layperson is reading a study, do they clearly state that this study involved a multivariate statistical analysis? Is that like a standardized classification mm-hmm. where they're the same 200 metrics to make sure that they accounted for all of these different confounding variables? Yes, and you'll see it in the method section. In the method section, there'll be a particular section for statistical analysis which will describe exactly what I just went through. And then usually when they show the results, which go through, and again, in order to read the results, I mean, you could sort of self-train, but a lot of that I've learned through doing my master's. You're looking at data and effect sizes and confidence intervals, and it's another language. But underneath that table of those results will show these different, what we call adjustment models. And that is the multivariate analysis. And, and I kind of went into quite a surface level example there. It does go a lot deeper depending on the study and depending on what exposure and outcome they're looking at. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, TheHappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, 
You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You obviously put a lot of studies in your book later, and I'm not sure if you knew you were ever going to write a book in these earlier days. Were you like, did you have a, when I first started getting into meditation and I knew that I was going to become a teacher one day, I had a binder. And every time I came across an inspirational story or just something that I thought that really resonated with me, I would store it away in my little binder. And so at some point, my binder would have hundreds of pages of different Mm -hmm. stories and anecdotes and different teachings. Did you have an equivalent of that when you were Mm -hmm. studying all of this? And what did that look like? It was online. And that was probably just to kind of, I was printing quite a few papers at the beginning, but then they start to stack up like my dad. And I thought, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not inheriting this habit. So I had, I, I, I mean, I'm so thankful, like from, from the beginning, I set up a kind of online database of studies as I'd go through them and I would categorize them. So I'd categorize them broadly by the area of health or health outcome, if it's cardiovascular disease or dementia or cancer, and then within there start subcategories. So I do have this kind of catalog of studies or archive that I can go back to at, at any moment. But yeah, you're right. I didn't think I was going to write a book. I was I was doing that just so that I could, personally, I could retrieve this information quite quickly if I needed to. One of the big phrases from the whole pandemic era was there'd be some online argument or conflict and then someone will say, you need to go do your research. And you talk about that in your book, this whole idea of doing your research. And it's not as simple if you're properly doing research based on what we just talked about, but it sounds like you were actually doing proper research. Talk about that. Talk about why it's not so easy to do your research. Well, for many of the the kind of things we've been through so far with regards to understanding the details of a study and mm-hmm. I guess zooming back out first, appreciating that there is an evidence hierarchy and so we have this pyramid that that helps us categorize different types of science by less reliable and less valid to more reliable, more valid. And at the very bottom of that is kind of expert opinion. If someone just says something, that's not very valid or, or reliable unless they're pointing to a study. But in that case, we're, we're thinking about the study. And then a rung above that, you have your kind of laboratory type studies they could be on animals or in a petri dish on cells again not very reliable or valid for extrapolating to humans and we know that we actually know that the translation of that research it's a very low percentage of what we see at that level that translates to humans 
And then a step above that is your kind of population studies where you're looking at people out in the wild and you're trying your best to adjust for these confounding variables. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how we worked out that smoking is not a great idea. It's through those studies, right? So often people say, well, these population studies, there's so many confounding variables, but we just have to appreciate that it's not feasible to run a clinical intervention for everything. Can you imagine if right now I said, well, light, you know, for smoking, I want to randomize people into a smoking group and a non-smoking group, and I want to track them for 60 plus years. And in order to kind of get to that position to want to do that study, first I've seen say 7,000 observational studies that tell me there's a strong correlation between smoking and cancer. It's not going to pass an ethics board to randomize people to smoking when we have that much observational evidence that it's not a good idea first and foremost. But then you can imagine that there's all sorts of adherence issues. It's so expensive to run a randomized controlled trial for that long. So the observational studies are are, are a really important piece of the puzzle. They help us explore questions that we can't explore with clinical interventions. Now, certainly clinical interventions are more robust in that They allow us to control for these kind of confounding variables better. The idea with the clinical intervention, a randomized controlled trial, is that the only difference between the two groups, because you've done a random allocation, is the exposure that you're looking at. So if we were to have two groups that, let's say, adopt different diets and we do a randomized controlled trial, we would expect that the background incidence of, say, alcohol and smoking and exercise and everything else is the same. And in fact, after Mm -hmm. they do a randomization, the researchers will check that and make sure that that randomization was actually random and there was no differences in those baseline characteristics. So understanding that evidence hierarchy would be an important first step if someone's going to kind of quote unquote do their own research. And then getting into each of the individual studies and looking at the methodology, some of those things that I mentioned before about compared to what, what exposure amount, what population, thinking about all of these things, looking at the data analysis, is there an appropriate adjustment for confounding factors? And you can really, I think, begin to appreciate that this is a specialty and it can be very hard for someone to do if this is not the the area that you're trained in which is, goes for many different careers in, in life. We, we wouldn't expect someone who's not trained in, say, finance to kind of just go in and, and do all of their accounting in a sophisticated business. So <clears throat> this is kind of one of the reasons why when I see do your own research online, just kind of posted or pasted, it worries me a little bit because I think that it makes it out as if it's quite a simple process and it's not, it's complicated. I'm still learning every single day and improving and realizing things that I didn't have right and updating the way that I'm looking at science. And this is one of the reasons why I think that the the kind of top journal guidelines are a really good first step for people like the Journal of, or the American College of Cardiology, for example, or the European Atherosclerosis Society, they produce guidelines, for example, for the prevention of cardiovascular disease. 
and they have a committee of folks that are trained in research and they all have different personal diets and they come together and they sit down and evaluate all of the literature using the evidence hierarchy, getting into the details of the methodology and coming to evidence-based recommendations for the public. So I often think that that's probably a better use of time for most people that are kind of wanting to get a quick snapshot of, hey, there's all this noise out there and it's quite confusing. I just want to understand what I what I should eat and I want it to come from a reliable source. That's often where I point people. You went to nutritional school. Nutritionists are, are seen, generally speaking, as the authorities on nutrition, right? Is there anything in your research that you have now thought back to the things you learned in nutrition school and thought, no, that's not quite the case? I get asked this all the time. I, th- I think people kind of have this idea that the nutrition schools are a long way behind the evidence, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that I really had that experience. I think at least the course that I did, you know, I think that by and large, the, the curriculum did reflect where the evidence is at today. And they do point to these major guidelines. You know, I can't think of any kind of major examples where where what I learned at university, I, I wouldn't agree with now. You know, and I think most people like that are kind of in the nutrition science space and are objective, most people agree on about 90% of things. I know that we spend a lot of time thinking about what do we disagree on? And I guess the algorithm kind of favors that. And and maybe that's our human psyche wanting to focus on that. But the chronic disease kind of situation that we're in right now, it's not as if we don't have enough information from a nutrition point of view to really change that. It's not knowing what to do. It's doing what we know. And that's the difficult thing right now is the implementation and the action at an individual level, but more importantly, at a community societal level to really you know, shift the needle here. When you write and present and create content and host your podcast and do all things plant-proof, who's your avatar? Who are you writing for? often think about my mom here and my mom is 67 this year and for many years has been caught up in the nutrition confusion has jumped from kind of diet to diet is often you know buying all sorts of crazy supplements and is quite impressionable and just takes everything at face value and is very confused I think she's very confused because over the years, she's been exposed to so many people with so many different nutrition philosophies. She has now come full circle so many times and just isn't really confident. So I think about her as one of the the avatars and, and I just use that word confident. What I am aiming to do is not tell people how to eat at all, but give them some information and some tools so that they can be more confident in a world where it is hard to be confident with our food choices. You know, it's easy to start doubting ourselves. Are we doing the the right thing? And there are actually many different dietary labels or dietary patterns that can bring great health. And I'm of the view that it's the kind of broad characteristics or overall theme that matters 
we can get kind of reeled into these different dietary labels and it can become very, very tribal. But in reality, when you do look objectively at nutrition science, it's not that there is one particular dietary label that hands down is the best. What we do see very consistently, though, is that dietary patterns where people have better health for longer, there are some common characteristics. And what I like to kind of put forward for folks is to help shine a light on those characteristics. And then people can, can pick and choose and find a variation of that theme that works best for them, that they feel best on, that they can sustain for the long term. Because in this nutrition conversation, there, there's a lot of approaches out there that I think are not sustainable for the individual. And we forget that there's no real value of someone adopting a particular diet and then giving it up in two weeks. You know, what, what I think most of us want for folks is to find a healthy dietary pattern that they can stick to for the long term. That's going to have the most effect on their health. That's going to reduce their risk the most of cardiovascular disease, of various types of cancer, of dementia, etc. I like this idea of instead of looking for the exceptions, you know, like the whole, my grandmother smoked her whole life. She lived to be 95 years old or whatever, which you have in your book. Instead of focusing on that, which I think a lot of us go to, to kind of justify whatever it is that we're doing in quotes, moderation, just looking at the different small things that we could all be doing just to get in better health, just drinking more water and adding a couple more varieties of plants to whatever it is you're eating and maybe cutting sugar in half and these kinds of things. And then there are different levels of veganism, right? There's, you may start off as a dirty vegan eating the fake meats and stuff. And then you kind of graduate from that and you start eating more salads and whatnot. And then eventually you get to the point where you start eating it because you care about the planet and you care about planetary health. And, you know, so you start doing more research. Talk to us about your progression in veganism. How did it go and compared to what sure. you see now? And let me just comment on the grandmother bit that you mentioned there, because I get that <laughs> a lot as well. I get that a lot as well. Yeah, of course. It's funny that that comes up and I get it. And I always say that the grandmother who's 93 and smokes and drinks alcohol, it's not as though the data we have doesn't explain that. She's there. She's just an outlier. And if you look at the bell curve, She's accounted for. We know she's there. So it's possible, but it's just not probable. So you can kind of ask yourself, do you want to kind of run the gauntlet and hope that you're an outlier? Or do you want to try and make some small changes, as you say, and, and shift things in your favor in case you're not one of these outliers? My journey definitely started with, with health. And I was able to kind of quite quickly identify that diets that are rich in plant protein, rich in fiber, that are low in saturated fat and very low in ultra-processed foods, a lot of those foods with added sugar you just mentioned before, diets that are kind of ticking those boxes are the ones that really are time and time again shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, which was kind of my on-ramp through my dad's experience, that's what I was most interested in. 
And there are really a number of reasons as to how eating in that way does reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease by improving cholesterol and improving blood pressure and inflammation and other risk factors. So that was kind of the initial on-ramp. And over the years, I started to become more and more interested in planetary health as well, in particular. And I think that was because that's another area where there is a lot of science. And again, mm-hmm. a lot of different views out there. So I interviewed you know, a bunch of different environmental scientists over the years on, on my show and, and I've gone myself into the, the literature. And it's really interesting that today, I think 50% of all habitable land is agriculture. And if you think about that, we've kind of turned earth into a giant farm. And this is really important because you know, the climate is certainly changing. There's no denying that. I think people may argue over what's causing it. But we do know that one of the, the biggest areas where humans are impacting the climate is through agriculture. And what that means is how do we, through how we produce food. We have 7, 8 billion people. We, we will shortly have 9 to 10 that we need to feed calories and these calories do come at the expense of the health of our environment. There are greenhouse gas emissions associated with the production of these calories. There's biodiversity loss, there's water loss, and it also, all of this also affects food security. You know, how many calories do we have to go around? And, and of that 50% of land that we're currently using for agriculture, the staggering statistic is that 83% of that is for animal agriculture. So 83% of all the land we use to produce food is for animal agriculture. But that only produces 18% of our calories. So we have enormous swaths of land devoted to this form of agriculture that is very inefficient. So the reason why that's very important is because one of the kind of most powerful ways that we can help keep our climate cooler and meet some of these climate targets is by drawing down more carbon. And one of the, or the most powerful way from a land point of view is to return a lot of this land to natural ecosystems, rewilding, reforesting. And it requires a, a bit of a mindset shift as opposed to kind of looking at all land as land for agriculture and what can we extract from it it's a mindset shift and if you look at the ipc report or the eight lancet all of these major reports you'll see that they're all recommending shifts to plant rich diets and the reason for that is not just because plant foods are responsible for significantly less greenhouse gas emissions when you produce them on a per calorie or per gram protein basis, but because it uses less land and we can free up all of this land. In fact, there's been a calculation suggesting that if the world was to shift to very plant-rich diets like the Eat Lancet diet, which is not a plant exclusive, there's still animal foods in there, but it's less, we could free up land the size of the African continent that could be rewilded and drawing down carbon and improving 
biodiversity. This is very much a land use conversation. What we're talking about when you hear people saying we need to shift to more plant-based, plant-rich diets from a food perspective to improve planetary health, what we're talking about here is removing or reducing the amount of land that we're using to produce our calories. Yeah, so over the years, that's become a passion of mine and something that I've spoken about. I speak about it in the book and I go through a lot of these different statistics. And you don't have to change your diet to a plant-exclusive diet to be a part of the solution. In the book, I write about what I think Mark Bittman calls a two-third vegan diet, which is I changed that to plant-based before 6 p.m. And essentially, that's eating plant-based for breakfast and lunch and having some animal protein with dinner. And even that style diet dramatically reduces greenhouse gas emissions from your, from your plate. So it's not about trying to adopt the perfect, quote unquote, perfect diet. I don't think that that exists. You need to find your sweet spot, but there are changes that we can make if that's something that we're kind of interested in. I love that mission of rewilding the size of land on the planet that's as big as the continent of Africa. When you think about that, that's definitely a mission that's bigger than you, probably won't happen in this lifetime, maybe not for the next couple of lifetimes. How do you actually see that happening with considering politics, capitalism, people's preferences, diet being as strong as religion? Walk us through your, not that you have all the answers, but just Whatever you've, you've envisioned, how do you kind of see it happening? How, how are people going to be inspired to do this? Through a movie, that, through stories? I think there needs to be, yeah. I, I mean, movies and stories are great, but I do, I do think there needs to be a top-down approach here as well where mm-hmm. there needs to be incentives. If I'm a farmer right now and I have cattle on my land and I've inherited this farm from my parents who worked very hard to build this farm up, I have a family and it's my livelihood. If I'm going to rewild this land, I want to be incentivized. I need to make more money through the carbon drawdown and putting plants back on on the farm and reducing my cattle. I need to make more money from that than I am from selling cattle. So there's there's an economic commercial element to this, right? You're not going to see people, let's be realistic, with huge farms where they have massive mortgages, families, you're not going to see them just do the right thing just to save save the planet. Yeah. And and I would argue that is it even, you know, even just contemplating, is it the right thing is like an interesting thing to contemplate from their perspective mm-hmm. of, you right. know, they have their family that relies on them and they, they have all of this debt. Many would probably argue the right thing is to keep their business operating or they end up bankrupt. So that's tough. And I think that often this conversation gets to a point like where farmers are made out to be the bad guys. But if you just think about that and appreciate that for the moment, unless that the farmer is given a way to go down another path where they can make just as much income or more, well, their hands are really tied. So there does have to be big top-down changes to help facilitate a change in the system. And the change in the system being moving from 
agriculture that uses 50% of habitable land to an agriculture system that has a much smaller footprint. And if we're going to do that, we need more people eating more calories directly from whole plants. There can still be some animal foods, but rather than being the hero of the plate, they're going to be more of a side, a smaller component. And I think that there are a number of challenges in doing that. We'd be fooling ourselves. You know, we're talking about food. Most governments have not wanted to talk about food for a long time because you have to be an incredibly brave government to try and tell people how to eat. It's a good way to get yourself voted out. So it's going to take some real political will to kind of come in and say, hey, here is our vision. We understand how important agriculture is to climate change. Now, we don't want anyone to kind of go bankrupt or we don't want our farmers, we don't want to let our farmers down. So we've come up with solutions to help them transition. This is what it's going to mean for them. This is what it's going to mean for you know American diets or Australian diets. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but we're close. And the latest IPCC report, again, reiterates we're running out of time here. So I think it will get to a point where governments really don't have an option and, and they do need to kind of step in and, and start to navigate the diet space a little bit more. Who do you think is going to lead this charge? Certainly not the US. I think it's a lot of the countries like Norway and mm-hmm. Eastern European countries and and some of them are already doing things. The Danish dietary guidelines are are very, very environmentally friendly. Health Canada, believe it or not, their dietary guidelines that came out in 2019 or 2020, and their guidelines are obviously for human health and but for the first time they mentioned planetary health and the importance of sustainability and the fact that human health relies on planetary health. So it's starting to happen. And in their guidelines, they say choose plant protein where possible. That's also in the American Heart Association guidelines last year. They say to choose plant protein where possible. And they're saying that, again, from a human health point of view, there are a lot of different studies showing that when you're eating more legumes, for example, over red meat, there are some benefits up for grabs, but also from an environmental perspective. So I think the governments that lead it will probably be out of Europe and we're starting to see guidelines changing. There's not a whole lot of conversation happening in Australia. So I'm not super proud of that, but the next five years are going to be very, very interesting. Well, one thing you mentioned in your book that I think is a concern for a lot of people, especially nowadays, especially having gone through the whole pandemic conspiracy theories and just that way of thinking. And you mentioned how, you know, in the last, I guess, 15 years or so, chocolate is now seen as healthy. Red wine, you know, is this health drink. (laughs) And you expose that that's not the full story because a lot of it is is being funded by these big corporations that don't give a crap about our health. They just want to sell more Mm -hmm. more products. So how, how do we see through that? The guidelines are very good at looking at industry funding and they're getting better. So, for example, those Health Canada guidelines that I just mentioned, they actually came out and you can look at this online. They came out on record and said, this is the first time 
that we are not being influenced by industry in the creation of these guidelines. Mm. And coincidentally, and I don't think dairy is poison. I don't take that position that some people do <laughs> within the vegan space. I, th- I have a more nuanced approach to dairy, but coincidentally, this was the first time that Health Canada removed dairy as an essential food group, having kind of taken that position. So the committees that are doing these guidelines are aware of industry research, and they're also aware mm-hmm. of, of the fact that not all industry-funded research is bad. If we didn't have industry funding any science, we'd actually have far less science to work with. So when I say something is industry funded, it increases my level of skepticism. But then I'm looking through that study to understand, well, what did they compare to? How did they define this population? Is there anything here to be worried about? And if I get to the end of that paper and it all reads well and looks good, then I'm no longer going to just discard that study because oh, it's industry funded. That's kind of my approach to reviewing science in general. Once I go through the methodology and that all checks out, then I'm not so concerned if it was industry funded or not. So I think there's no real short answer to this other than yes, industry fund studies. Often they set up the study in terms of the design to make their food or product look favorable. Again, could be comparing it to a dummy diet or there are a number of things that they could do in the design so that the conclusion looks favorable. But usually you can spot that. If you look through the trial or scientists can usually spot that. Now, the unfortunate thing here, Light, is that the media do not do that. They don't go into I was going to say, it's a great headline to say wine is great yeah. for you. <laughs> exactly. You know, that'll so, sell a lot of magazines, mm, especially yeah, if well, in a wine magazine. Yeah, I think there's a compound in wine resveratrol. Not, not I think there is. What I think is that, you know, it's been reported that this is a bit of a longevity compound and has all of these fabulous effects. But I can't remember the exact amount. But in order to get enough of that compound, you'd have to drink like 20 or 30 liters of wine. And that's not always in the article when people mm-hmm. write about, about red wine. So you're right, the headline and this is one of the big, big challenges that we face, is that the headlines love absolutes. They love more extreme positions. And science is not absolute. It's more nuanced. But can you imagine if a headline included the nuance? It would probably be fairly boring, unappealing, and wouldn't drive clicks. And this then flows through to social media If you look at accounts that take more absolute extreme positions, often they're huge. And when they do their posts, if you look at their engagement, it's huge. The algorithm favors these very extreme absolute positions. And that's why people double down on them because that position works. It gets one side who finds that an appealing message. You reinforce their identity. You have reinforced our identity. So they love that message. And then at the other side of the fence, it triggers those people. And they, the, you know, the comments go off. The algorithm picks this up and it reaches more people. So unfortunately, as things, the current landscape is set up both in mainstream media and on social media, the more nuanced kind of explanation is usually almost always getting less attention. 
let's bring it back to the individual. So someone hears this conversation and maybe they eat relatively when their mind healthy. I eat grass fed, whatever, or I eat plant based, whatever. How can someone verify whether or not their particular diet is effective? What are some of the markers? What kind of tests or labs can they get to show them if it's effective? So you can do a basic lab test, which will come back with your vitamin and mineral status for most of the major vitamins and, and minerals. So that's a kind of good first step. Often that will include a basic lipid panel. The lipid panel is really giving you a a kind of window into your cardiovascular health and your risk of having a heart attack or even a stroke. And these are really important to look at even if you're, say, 20 light because these diseases are not something that just happens overnight. You might have a heart attack when you're 40 or when you're 50 or when you're 60, but they actually have a long latency period. And what that means is that the pathology is brewing under the surface for a long time. So the earlier you can start to look at this objective information and then make changes, the lower your lifetime risk of having one of these events will be. So the lipid test is going to show you things like total cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol, your what they call non-HDL cholesterol, and a bunch of other things. The most important thing to look at there is non-HDL cholesterol. And we could go right into the weeds on this, so I'll try and keep it surface level here. But what we know is atherosclerosis, which is the most common cause of cardiovascular disease and is essentially a word, a scientific word that describes plaque. Imagine your arteries and you have plaque, fatty plaque building up. That's what we call atherosclerosis. This relies on atherogenic lipoproteins. And I'm going to break down what that means because that probably sounds like a lot of jargon. We have fats that travel in our blood, like uh, the fats that we eat and also the cholesterol that our liver makes. And in order for these to travel through the blood, they're not actually water soluble. So they have to be carried by something. You know, a little bit like light, if you think about when we ship stuff around the world in a shipping container, We have to put those containers onto a big cargo boat. So you can imagine that all of those containers on the top, that's your cholesterol and fats. Mm -hmm. And the ship is a protein. The protein is carrying the fats and the cholesterol on top of it. Now, some of these ships, if they bump into, as they're going through the ocean, if they bump into, let's call it the dock, but in, in, in our body's case, we're talking about the, the wall of our artery. If they bump into the artery, instead of just deflecting off, they actually enter the dock and become lodged. They become stuck. And so if that becomes retained or stuck in the artery wall, as you can imagine, the fat, the cholesterol that's on top of it can start to build up. And that's how you develop these plaques. And the reason that is problematic is because your arteries are very important for transporting oxygenated blood to our organs. And as this plaque is building up and up, it can obstruct blood flow. It can reduce the blood flow to your heart 
or in the case of a stroke, to your brain. I said before, non-HDL is, is, a, is the most important thing to look at on that blood test. The reason for that is that number, that non-HDL number, essentially accounts for all of these proteins in your blood that have the capacity to cross into the artery and get stuck. That's what it's looking at. So when you look at the non-HDL number, you want to see, because usually there's a reference range there, and I won't do the conversions because America is different to Australia and whatnot, but the important thing is to look at that non-HDL number and see that it is within the healthy reference range. There's a better test now that's available that you can request. In some areas, you'll have to pay for it, though it won't be part of the standard kind of Medicare-covered test. And this test is called APOB. This is the gold standard to see the number of atherogenic lipoproteins directly in your blood, the concentration of them. To give you an idea, you want that figure at about 70 to 80 milligrams per deciliter or lower. When you get down to that level, and that's the level someone's had over their entire life, you do not see atherosclerosis. Now, the average person getting around in Australia or in America today, their ApoB is more at around 120, so considerably higher. Now, you, you may be thinking, well, okay, if I get that test and it's high, what can I do? So this would be a discussion to have with your physician, and it would depend on how high it was. If it wasn't considered to be a genetic, because there are some genes in certain cases that can cause elevated ApoB, and you would know that by perhaps someone else in your family has this, or it's always been elevated your entire life, and you can see that on previous mm -hmm. tests, this is how you would identify that. But if we were thinking about diet, what can you do from a diet point of view to lower that figure? The key things are to eat less saturated fat, to eat more polyunsaturated fats because they lower that number, and to eat more fiber because fiber lowers that number. And so what does that look like overall? This is why I'm a proponent of plant-predominant diets because as you start to reduce your emphasis on meats, particularly the fattier cuts of meats, but even the lean meats, lean red meat and lean white meat, as you start to eat less of those and you eat more plant protein, but more seafood as well, fatty fish is good, nuts and seeds and avocado, and you, you might be thinking that what I'm describing is a little bit more of like a Mediterranean-style diet, as you start to make those shifts, you see the dietary pattern has less saturated fat naturally. It has more polyunsaturated fats, which are found in, in fish and in nuts and seeds, and it has more fiber. And all of those coalesce to drive that ApoB number down to reduce the amount of atherogenic lipoproteins in your blood. That's why we see those dietary patterns reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's one important test that I would say. Over and, and kind of above that, I don't think the average person needs to go and, and do anything else more fancy than all of that. So what you're doing is you're making sure that your vitamin and your nutrient status is good. Of course, if something was low, you would then work through diet or supplement to correct that. And you're looking at your lipid panel and making sure that that's putting you 
at a level where you're going to be at very low risk of having a cardiovascular event. And the earlier, the better. That's why I want people to, to test this stuff in their teens, 20s, preferably. But then even if you're 40, 50 now and you haven't been keeping an eye on it, get to it now because it's going to be much better that you get a hop onto this now as opposed to looking at it when you're 70 or 80. Other than, than that, I don't think there is, is too much else that people need to test. If someone comes back and, of course, their physician sees their lipids are, are really not great and perhaps they have a personal history of cardiovascular disease or their family does, they may order extra tests like a coronary artery calcium scan, for example. There are further diagnostics that people can do to kind of determine that person's risk of having an event and and also whether they can improve their lipids through diet alone and, and lifestyle or whether they also need some form of pharmaceutical intervention as well. And if someone does have numbers that are a little bit concerning and they want to take the next step, right? Obviously, getting your book is a good point of reference, but if they want someone to actually consult them, because mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, they talk about how doctors don't have a whole lot of nutritional training. So maybe you should take their dietary advice with a grain of salt. I don't know if that's still the case or not, but what do you recommend? Should they hire a nutritionist? Is there a resource that you're aware of that people can reach out to and get some coaching or mentorship in that regard? I think most registered dietitians, if we're Mm -hmm. talking about here about a diet as the kind of intervention and what someone's interested in getting some advice on, I would be going to see a registered dietitian over a physician for specific nutrition information. But your physician could well and, and probably should be part of that overall conversation. You're looking at you're you're seeing the physician more for your kind of primary point of contact. They're going to look at all your lab tests and then you would go and work with a dietitian specifically on the diet component. But again, then you may three months down the track go back to your physician explain the changes you've made with your diet. They might review your medications. They might order more labs so you can see the changes, objectively see, okay, I've, I've tweaked these things in my diet with the dietitian and these are the changes that I've made. I can share you a, a few links and resources that could help people find a dietitian that they could work with. When I published the book before the last one that we talked about on your podcast, which is Bliss More, how to succeed in meditation without really trying. One of the things that I would say that made my book unique amongst all the other meditation books is that it was actually written by someone who is teaching meditation to regular people on the front lines, as opposed to someone who's just a marketing person or an internet guru or self-help person or a doctor, none of which actually works with people day-to-day teaching them meditation, right? What would you say is unique about your book compared to all of the other plant-exclusive books that are out there in the market? Well, I guess firstly that it's not plant-exclusive. So that would be one of the main things. I guess, and and my overall approach in in terms of not being afraid of the gray, the nuance, you're not going to see absolutes in there. And I really want people 
to, you know, in the book, I define plant-based and we didn't do that this episode, but plant-based does not mean plant-exclusive. I think sometimes people see my book and assume it's a vegan book. It's, it's not a vegan book. I want people to look at the, the science that I put forward and the information and adapt to this, this way of plant-based eating that works for them. So first and foremost, you won't see hyperbole or exaggerations of the science. I'm simply showing the most up-to-date cutting-edge science that we have today right. and, and want you to kind of understand that and understand why confusion exists. So rather than just telling you, do this, I explore topics and explore why there are different views and try and give you the information that leaves you feeling confident. So next time you see a headline about eggs or about red meat or about vegan diets, you go, ah, yes, I understand. You know, I, I read that in Simon's book and I'm not going to be derailed by this headline. So in many ways, I wrote the book almost and clearly i don't want to talk about vaccines are obviously very controversial but in a different kind of way i see the book almost as a vaccine to kind of immunize people against misinformation and so i'm well aware that there are misinformation in all camps there's misinformation in the very very meat diet camps there's misinformation in the vegan camp and i wrote the book to kind of try and clear up a lot of that provide a kind of objective nuanced voice and my publisher told me that people want the simplified message and don't want the detailed nuance and i fought for that because i actually i disagree i think today you know i know from my podcast the listeners are so intelligent and people want more information so it's not going to be a book where I'm assuming the reader is not intelligent. I'm assuming the reader is intelligent and I'm giving you quite a bit of information, but I know that you'll be able to make sense of it. How would you articulate your personal mission these days? To give people a greater appreciation of science. And I know that sounds very broad, but I think science has, over the, at least over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of question marks about it. And mm -hmm. coming back to what we started on, I think that some people have lost trust in science and faith. Mm -hmm. And there are some very valid reasons I understand where they're coming from. We touched on industry-funded research, and I can understand how someone may have lost faith in science. But I want to help people appreciate that science is while it's not perfect, it is the best method we have for objectively testing our hypotheses and intuition. And while there are a number of areas where science needs to improve, and I want to be fighting for that, we don't need to throw it out as I see certain people, you know, kind of proposing that science is not the way forward. So through these nuanced discussions, and getting into some of the deeper stuff, my aim is to kind of rebuild some of that trust in science, particularly in nutrition science. The science community, I guess over the, if you look at the last hundred years, in the early 1900s, the diseases of the day were like scurvy and beriberi. 
and pellagra, these kind of nutrient deficiency diseases. As the century kind of progressed, those diseases, they kind of started to fade away in developed countries because nutrition science identified the key vitamins that were important and we were able to manage those. But the diseases of the, of the day changed to these non-communicable chronic diseases. And there are many people out there that I, that I see online who suggest that the last 70 years of nutrition science has been a failure. If you mm-hmm. look at the rates of disease, you know, it would be easy for someone, I can see how someone would say, well, if we've been studying nutrition for 70, 80 years, looking at its effect on cardiovascular disease and various cancers, why are the rates of these diseases still going up? And I mentioned earlier, it's not a case of, of needing to know more. Our problem and the reason why we're seeing these rates of disease go up is our failure to implement and to get action. And if you currently look at the dietary guidelines today, like less than 5% of people are following them. And it's not the individual that I'm blaming here. Our societies are just not set up in a way that makes it easy to follow them. And that's why 60% of the calories are coming from ultra-processed foods. So where I'm getting at with all of this is that I want people to see science as I see it. It is to be appreciated, to be loved. It's very, very important for our societies. It's not without its failures, but I think it is key, central to making this this world better for us and, and for future humans. Final question for you. Word on the street is that you're a very successful businessman. <laughs> you have a restaurant. You obviously have a very successful podcast. And I'm curious, how have your markers for success changed over the years? How are you currently defining success for yourself? Is it in book sales? Is it in how many people are inspired by you to change your diet or upgrade their diet? Or how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I wish I had a tangible metric. It's, it's, I probably previously was a bit more focused on the tangible things. And this might sound airy-fairy, but for me today, and, and one of the pillars, one of the pillars of my new updated show, the six pillars, but one of them is a line and I'm talking about alignment here. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've been able to better understand how aligned I am in terms of my daily actions and how aligned they are with my values. And when there's some discordance there, things just don't feel right. So in terms of you know, kind of evaluating my success now, I see my success as being able to continue my passions and and do what I love in alignment with my value set. And I'm not interested in boosting some sort of number on a piece of paper or the bank account if it is out of whack with that. So, you know, I'm certainly not against making money. I think it's important and should not be shunned, but I want to feel that I'm doing that in a way where I'm also representing my value set and I think that you know, my approach with a lot of this is to embody what I say and to lead by example. And I, th- I do think that you know, speaking generally, one of the best ways to influence people around you is certainly to, to actually live by your values 
and be a walking, living proof example of that. So, you know, I certainly don't get that right all the time. And there's internal dialogue about, okay, you're thinking about doing this or, or this, but your values here, it doesn't quite feel that right. And, you, and I know that you would know this feeling. We all have it. And you kind of think about, you know, well, what can I do to close that gap? And as you start to close that gap, life feels easier. It feels more right. peaceful. And, you know, this is not something that I appreciated in my early 20s. I was just full steam head down. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe ignorance is bliss. But now the, the, <laughs> that I think about all of this stuff a, a lot more, I'm, I'm just certainly more conscious of keeping that peace which all starts with those actions. What's interesting is you can't really adjust the values. You almost always have to adjust your actions, which makes it so difficult. Sometimes. Well, you can try. You can try to adjust your, you can do some mental gymnastics and try and adjust your <laughs> values. But the problem right. is, and I, have to, I do that, and, but then I'm conscious of the fact that I'm doing that and right. it, it doesn't feel right. No. Beautiful, man. Well, look, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your origin story and your philosophy and your ideology. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I want to acknowledge you for being so consistent, as consistent as you've been, because I know I know how how it is, especially when you're getting into when you're wading over into the diet wars <laughs> mm. <laughs> to be objective and to be the voice of reason in a, such a highly charged environment is no small feat. It's not for the faint at heart. So I appreciate you. We appreciate you. And, and I think that you have succeeded thus far in making the world a better place, better than you found it. So thank you for that. Thank you a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning into my interview with Simon Hill. Make sure to follow Simon on social media at Simon Hill. That's spelled S-I-M-O-N-H-I-L-L. It's the verified account. And I highly recommend checking out his podcast, which is called The Proof, as well as grabbing a copy of The Proof is in the Plants. And again, even if you're not interested in adopting an exclusively plant-based diet, you're going to find a ton of information in Simon's book, as his aim is not to get you to cut everything out of your diet. He just wants to encourage people to eat more plants for your health, for planetary health. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com. While you are there, you can search through my past episodes by subject matter. So if you want to see more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome health or financial challenges, you can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com. Oh, and by the way, did you know that you can watch these podcast episodes on YouTube? Because I know for me, sometimes I like to put a face or a voice to a story. So just keep that in mind in case you're the same and you find yourself on YouTube frequently. I post every podcast episode on my channel, which you can find by just searching Light Watkins Podcast the next time you're in YouTube. And I also post the raw, unedited version of these podcast episodes in my online community, which is called The Happiness Insiders. So if you're the type that likes hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat and the stuff that we cut out when we're editing the episodes, then you can listen to all of that by joining 
my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcasts, but you'll also have access to my seven-day meditation kickstart as well as my 108-day meditation challenge. There are other challenges on there as well, including the 108-day movement challenge. And if you're feeling inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to stick around for a while, the best way you can support my mission is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast. And I know everybody says that and hardly anyone does it, (laughs) but if you ever start your own podcast, I guarantee you'll be saying it too because you understand how valuable it is when just one person such as yourself takes 10 seconds to look at their phone screen, tap on the name of the show, scroll down past a few previous episodes. They'll see five blank stars. If they just click on that fifth star all the way on the right, it makes a tremendous difference in how quickly this podcast comes up in the search results. So if you are willing to take those 10 seconds to do that for me, I would highly, highly appreciate that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story from someone, again, just like me and you, who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, I trust that you are working on your purpose and you're trusting your intuition, you're following your heart, you're taking those leaps of faith. And hopefully one day I'll have you on the show to tell us the story. Thank you very much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.